Good morning. This is from the Hekigan Roku case 36, Changsha wandering in the mountains. The case. One day, Changsha went wandering in the mountains. Upon returning, when he got to the gate, the head monk asked, Where are you coming from, master? Changsha said, From wandering in the mountains. The head monk asked, where did you go? Changsha said, First I went pursuing the fragrant grasses. Then I returned following the falling flowers. The head monk said, How very much like the sense of springtime. And Changsha said, It even surpasses the autumn dew dripping on the lotuses. Zretu added the remark, Thank you for your reply. The verse. The earth is clear of any dust, whose eyes do not open. First he went following the fragrant grasses, then he returned pursuing the falling flowers. A weary crane alights on a withered tree, a mad monkey cries on the ancient terrace. Changsha's boundless meaning. Bah! So a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> I witnessed the funeral of my Aikido teacher. And the days between his passing and his burial felt quite heavy and sad. And there was a, there's a natural process of grieving which will take place over a period of time going forward. But personally, I experienced a turning point at the moment I saw the closing of the coffin. It didn't make the sadness go away, obviously. Yet the next morning, I woke up with a renewed sense of energy and a sense of purpose about the importance of staying fully engaged with the practice or the path. But not in the limited scope of what we may designate as Aikido practice in this case. This sense of renewed energy was more about the practice of embracing the wholeness of life without delay. In the martial arts training, there is a common understanding that what is considered the practice is referring to the techniques and training methods being used and honed over a long period of time. And that's typically understood to be taking place in a specific location called a dojo in Japanese, Daochang in Chinese, or Dojang in Korean. And the translation of this word simply means the place where the way is practiced. Do, Dao, Tao, the way, Marga in Sanskrit. In Zen, we also know this word as in Zendo, 
right? The place where we practice the way of Zen. But whether it's in reference to martial arts or to Zen, the true meaning of the word Do or Dao goes well beyond a specific location, a specific time, incremental steps to follow. Maybe more importantly, it goes well beyond our linear way of thinking and conceptual parameters. The way, the Tao, is the non-being within the being, the non-doing within the doing. The you before you, or the unseen fiber that unifies the whole of existence in its totality. To the thinking mind, this sounds quite elusive or esoteric, but since we come into the practice form being heavily reliant on the thinking mind, it takes a long time to realize that it is as close and as intimate as it gets. And it is always readily available to anyone. But it takes a radical shift of, of trust that moves from the known to the unknown. As the Tao Te Ching states beautifully, the Tao that can be thought of is not the Tao. When I first got involved in practice, I had some common knowledge of what Zen or Buddhism is or what I thought it is. But I really had no idea where it will lead me or where it will going, was going to lead. How I will experience it and the ways and depth in which it will affect and change my life. Both practices, Aikido and Zen, have radically transformed my life in many, many ways, many levels. But in ways I did not think about, or ways I could not think of. And mostly because my ideas about the practice were based on accumulated and conventional knowledge, and as such they were devoid of experiential understanding. In other words, the mind, the thinking mind, thought it knows, but the body did not. And it is natural to have some ideas about Zen when we first set foot on the path. But time and diligent practice slowly chips away at the ideas and present us all with the true meaning of Zen as an actual embodied experience. And if we stick with the practice for a while, it will inevitably begin to erode our known story-based sense of self and while eventually this will lead to liberation from the tight grip of the known self, it is a stage of practice that feels very threatening. And I, I have a feeling that this is one of the reasons why some people quit, live the practice. It can be, it will be, or we will find it at some points quite threatening. And we will feel compelled to run away from it. And being so creative as we are, we will find substantiated reasons 
to quit. Essentially, the practice may not deliver what we expect, but it will teach us how to be free as we face the unexpected. And that's not a choice. A minute from now, we face the unexpected. Although we don't think that way. In this koan, we encounter Changsha, a 9th century Chinese Zen master, who was a disciple of Nanquan, Nansen, Joshu's teacher. It is said that Changsha was known for his sharp and swift style. It says that if anyone asked about the teachings, he would give them an explanation of the teachings. If someone wanted a verse, he would give them a verse. If you wanted to have a meeting of adepts, he would have a meeting of adepts with you. Or in other words, he was free to fit the occasion and shapeshift as needed. He did not reside in an idea of Zen. He did not try to conform to what the mind thinks. This is Zen. This is not. This is the way. This is not the way. And in this case, in this koan, it says that he went out of this monastery for a walk in the mountains. And he was probably away for a while, so when he returned, the head monk greeted him at the gate and asked, Where are you coming from, master? And Changsha said, From wandering in the mountains. Now we should note that Dialogues in koans are not to be seen as casual conversations between two people. They're often dharma exchanges that are meant to sharpen the spiritual eye of those involved. But also for us as we read, listen, or study the text. The question, where are you coming from, was a common way to begin a dharma encounter. In the essential realm, there is no coming and going, as you remember, you may remember from last week's discussion on chapter 29 from the Diamond Sutra. The Buddha does not live anywhere, does not come from anywhere. There's no living, there's no arriving. There's just this. Of course, for the mind, there is the possibility to leave, to, to go anywhere, somewhere else. Or there is the possibility of another place, another location. Maybe a better place. In reality, there is nothing better than this. So Changsha says, I came from wandering in the mountains. And the word wandering in the dictionary is defined as Traveling aimlessly from place to place. It's a good description of what Zen practitioners do. Just wander around. Is it aimlessly? What is? What does it mean to be aimless? Does it mean we don't have goals? Does it mean we don't strive? 
The Tao Te Ching says, A good traveler has no fixed plans and is not intent upon arriving. He who shoots the arrow well does not hit the target. Some of you may remember that from the miscellaneous koans. A good traveler has no fixed plans. Yeah, there are plans. But the, a good traveler is living in a state of willingness to drop the plans in a heartbeat. Why? Because life says so. Life demands that we drop the plans instantly when the plans do not match reality. Life is asking us to listen. Are we listening? So no fixed plans and no intent upon arriving. Well, how can we arrive if we can never leave? It's not how we think. And that's okay. It doesn't have to be what we think. So there's a clear answer. But the head monk either didn't get it or wanted to get some more teaching. So he asked, where did you go? Where did you wander around? How did it look like? How did it smell like? In the commentary it says, since he was wandering in the mountains, why did the head monk ask, where did you go? If he had been one of today's followers of Zen, he would have said, I came to the inn on Manchia. See how that man of old did not have even the slightest hair of reason or judgment, and that he had no place to abide. That is why he said, first I went following the fragrant grasses, then I returned pursuing the falling flowers. Now, to stop by the inn at Manchia is to chop life up to small fragments of varying sizes and values. So many, lots of stop and go in our lives. A lot of gaps created by our longing for a better moment, better version of self, better circumstances. And being so preoccupied with all these thoughts, we become blinded to the fullness of life. And the great way remains elusive and out of reach. It is right here, yet it remains elusive and out of reach. Because we try to think about it. Because we break it down to pieces. Waiting for something else to happen, we reject what is and remain in a constant state of limbo. Does anyone arrive? Do you ever arrive at any state of satisfaction or contentment that is not dependent on anything? Or a state of contentment that depends on who you already are? How does that feel like? How can that be threatened? 
How can you become someone else? So he says, first I went pursuing the fragrant grasses, then I returned following the falling flowers. And the head monk said, how very much like the sense of springtime. Well, we sense it now. It's raining. We smell it. It's beautiful. Coming out of winter. The snow is melting. We like that. We want to like reality. We want to get away from not liking it. But then what? What happens when we encounter what we do not like? So he says, how very much like the sense of springtime, and Changsha says, well, it even surpasses the autumn dew dripping on the lotuses. Yes, it's great. Spring is wonderful. Don't get stuck with that. Or don't look for that. Zretu, the, the compiler of this Khan collection, added a remark, thanks for your reply. That should have been the reply of the head monk. So there are two commentaries from another book on this collection by Hakuin and Tenkei. Hakuin was a Rinzai master, Tenkei a Soto master. Hakuin said, First I'll follow the fragrant grasses on the way out. Driven by enthusiasm, drawn by the fragrant grasses, he goes, forgetting himself. This is splendid. It cannot be labeled the transcendental or the imminent, the present or the beyond. Then he came back pursuing the falling flowers. When the, when the fun was over, he came back. And when returning, he also forgot himself in the falling flowers. How very much like the sense of spring. He held up a 150-pound hammer before him. How peaceful and pleasant it must be. It even surpasses the autumn dew. It even surpasses the desolate scenery of autumn. This without any order of Buddhism. No stench of Zen in that. We start thinking we are practicing Zen. I know what that is, or at least I have an idea of what that is. And that has to disintegrate, fall away. The idea of Zen becomes a hindrance to truly practicing Zen. Any idea becomes a hindrance. And then Tenkei remarked on that. Roaming the mountains required free time. In the context of Zen, so-called roaming the mountains and enjoying the waters refers to the state of those who have done their task and transcended Buddhas and Zen masters. Roaming the mountains does not just mean literally going up the mountains. All the activity and repose of such a person, day and night, is roaming the mountains. That sounds very fitting with what we're trying to do with this ungo. 
in terms of wholeheartedness, not chopping what we are willing to be wholehearted with and then what we are not willing to be wholehearted with. And then he says the general meaning of the koan can be seen as all about roaming the mountains. When the congregation leader asks the master where he has been, there is an echo in his words, trying to examine Changsha's footprints. Where do you find the footprints? First, I followed, roaming the mountains without impediment, without fixation anywhere. Beyond emotional object objectification or comparative judgment, like spring, how peaceful the sense you express. Like the sense of spring, he says, with the underlying meaning that there still seems to be some warmth somewhere. Don't you know it is a pure, cool state of mind without the slightest breath of warmth? Don't let that trap you. Don't think about this statement. Take it directly to your gut. And you will know what that means. You know, Changsha, we can assume that Changsha began practicing with many notions in his mind, like all of us. He wasn't different with an idea of dissolving barriers, reaching enlightenment, saving others, becoming compassionate, or whatever else was going on in his mind at that time. That's pursuing the fragrant grasses. There was enthusiasm. I will get somewhere with this. I will break through all the barriers. I will find freedom. I will find freedom because it's not here that's the assumption then over time and diligent practice all the preconceived ideas naturally faded away for him and he again naturally awakened to life in its entirety which of course includes the falling flowers. It includes what we don't like. Equally includes what we don't like. And for, for Changsha, wholeheartedness is just a natural way of being. And he knows how to lose himself to the fragrant grasses, to the falling flowers, to the highs, the lows, and whatever is in between. In terms of Zen training, the word wholeheartedness refers to a state of being in which we experience and express gratitude in an undifferentiated manner, as it is expressed in a famous line from the Diamond Sutra, this Dharma is equal, no high, no low. Conventionally, we may view growth as good or positive 
and decay as bad or negative, and then again naturally become attached to what we consider good and reject what we consider as bad or unwanted. But in reality, each of us is a seamless expression of both growth and decay. So if we reject one aspect of our existence, we reject the whole thing. We reject the whole thing. Or what we want is not different than what we run away from or what we don't want. It does feel different, but it's not. The practice of unconditional, wholehearted appreciation cuts through the judgments of our differentiating consciousness. It's like walking around with a sharp sword at your disposal and then decisively cutting off the preferences with every step. Now, when you realize that this is the only breath you can take, this is the only moment you can experience and this is the only person that you can interact with. How can you not be wholehearted? How can you not express appreciation, deep care and love? Why would we get caught up if we truly realize it? Dogen said, flowers fall despite our love for them and weeds grow up despite our aversion to them. We like, we dislike, life goes on. It doesn't stop to listen. What would you like today? It just shows up. And we meet it and then we look at, do I like it? Do I not? Does it fit my standards today? And when it doesn't fit my standards today, then what? Then I may want to chuck it. Instead of chucking the standards, maybe I'll chuck the day. Bury my head in the sand. That's as far as we can go. Bury the head in the sand. Pretend. Pretend. That's it. This is also flowers fall and weeds grow up. It's also an analogy for the flowering of enlightenment and the weeds of delusion. There is, of course, such thing called enlightenment but it does not sit in opposition to what we call delusion. Enlightenment can help us embrace delusion, embrace suffering, embrace it all, rather than graduate from suffering or delusion into enlightenment as we think it is. 
as we think it is. Yamada Kuhn commented on this uh, beautiful maturation process of Changsha. And he says the savor of, of Kensho is different at 60 years of age from that at 30. And in this koan, you can see clearly, you can see that at the writings of Dogen Zenchi as well, everywhere in his early writings, his enlightened eye gives you a dazzling effect, but as it gradually ripens, it gives an impression of oxidized silver or patina. There is no light shining on the surface. There, the heart knows an entirely different degree of stability. The heart knows an entirely different degree of stability. And I, I just, I love that description of oxidized silver or patina. It's like having a, an old worn out jacket, which served you well for many, many years. It doesn't look brand new, shiny, may not be in anymore, but it's beautiful in a different way. And the heart knows a different degree of stability. Now that word, stability, we have to break through that too. We think losing balance is being not unstable. Yet when we walk, we lose balance. If we don't lose balance, you cannot walk, period. Walking is losing balance step by step and regaining it by moving the leg forward. If you insist on maintaining balance, you are not able to walk. More than that, if we insist on maintaining balance, we are not able to live and flow with life as it shows up. We have to let go of wanting stability before we can find stability. We have to let go of who we think we are before we can encounter who we really are. There's a, a verse, you've heard this before, famous verse of Joshua, which is expressing that level of maturation or process of maturation and the uh, that patina, no sheen on it. And Joshua was one of the greatest Zen masters of all times. He said, Cock crows in the early morning. Sadly, I see as I rise how worn out I am. I haven't a kilt or a shirt, just a semblance of a robe. My loincloth has no seat, seat my pants no opening on my head. There are three or five pecks of gray ashes. Originally, I said, I intended to practice to help save others. Who would have suspected that I instead, I would become an idiot? And you've heard before that this, if there is a purpose to practice, it is that. The purpose of practice is essentially to become an idiot. 
Idiot means to be, to be fully in alignment with life, to not know, to be okay with not knowing. In fact, if you read Rezan's last Ashuso, last sharing, he said, he wrote, the trick is to be informed by not thereby to be knowing. That's the same. To be informed by not to be knowing, not to be knowing. And not to be knowing is to know it all experientially. But we have to be okay with not knowing. We have to be okay with being idiots through and through, which completely goes the other way of what we are taught. It is radical because we always want to be better then. We always look ahead. We always reject. So wholeheartedly embrace. How can anything be better than that if we choose to wholeheartedly embrace it? The verse, the earth is clear of any dust. And the footnote says, open wide the doors and windows. Who is under the eaves? None can miss it, if you look, right? The world is at peace. From the beginning, all beings are Buddha. Nothing to create. No one else to be. Nowhere else to go. Whose eyes do not open. And then it says, the footnote, one must emit a great radiant light from his forehead before this is possible. Third eye. Why scatter dirt and sand? If you want to stop suffering, stop creating it, right? But I'm not creating it. Are you not creating it? Are we not creating our own entanglements? First he went following the fragrant grasses, then he returned pursuing the falling flowers. Everywhere is completely real. Luckily, he came back. Under his feet, the mud is three feet deep. It is muddied. It is hazy. But he's okay with that too. A weary crane alights on a withered tree. A mad monkey cries on the ancient terrace. And Tenke commented on this saying, what an immaculate, unimpeded realm is that? There are no tracks, either coming or going, no comparing objects of emotions. When Secho, the compiler, looks at this Changsha from left-hand side, he looks like a weary crane worn out from flight, standing on a leafless withered tree in winter. And then, when he looks from the right, he appears like a mad monkey or an ignorant ape screeching on the desolate ancient terrace. 
be it notions of Buddha or notions of Dharma, reasoning or figuring, there is not a speck of warmth. Unimpeded, effortless activity is a realm of clean simplicity. It is simple. We just like complicating things. Now, to function within a conventional reality while being rooted in the fundamental reality can create the appearance of a mad person who is detached or disconnected. Why are you not creating drama out of this? Can't you see what he or she is doing? The mind loves the drama. The mind loves the drama. So we feed it with more of the same. And wisdom can come across as crazy or radical or being numb if we don't understand what it really means. In other words, being in alignment can for a very long time feel foreign and different. And living in a cre in creation of drama may feel more natural. Complaining actually may feel more natural. Judging. But we have to allow it to wither. We have to keep going. And then it ends, the, the poem ends with Changsha's boundless meaning. Bah. Enough words. Enough talk. Enough thinking. Too much. And this koan brings up this state of being that is typically achieved after a long and rigorous withering process when one is no longer obsessed with self-concerned thoughts and there is a sense of alignment with the way as life unfolds moment by moment. The desire to be somewhere else or someone else just drops away and the whole of life is embraced as is, rather than being compared or judged. And it takes time to reach this level of empty-headedness. But that should not matter to a Zen practitioner who recognizes the urgency to merge with the way right now. Because there is no other time to merge. And so we don't wait for any other opportunity to embrace life fully, wholeheartedly. We don't wait, we give it all without holding back, decisively, decisively give it all. And it doesn't matter how long we practice, whether it's Aikido, whether it's Zen. So what if we are just beginning? Give it all. If you're clumsy, give it all to being clumsy. Here is a clumsy Buddha. That's not good. A Buddha that remembers all the chants and sits like a rock is better. 
Who is saying that? There is no authority that is judging. It's just us creating judgments, creating barriers, walls. Thinking there is a better place. Thinking that after I practice for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, I will be something. But now I'm not. Again, who is saying that? Now, losing someone we care about can be a great opportunity and a great catalyst to not, to stop waiting, to stop this cycle of waiting and to fully embrace. You know, I remember that Pema Chodron, one of her talks or discussions she had, she was asked about death. And she said, I don't know what, what to say about this except for this. She said, death is certain. The time of death is uncertain. Now ask yourself, what is most important right now? Death is certain, which means the opportunities will be lost. The time is uncertain, which means this is the only opportunity we have. Now what? Yeah, but statistically, blah, 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 blah. Statistically, what does that mean? Nothing. It doesn't mean anything. What if today is the day? How do we know it's not? How do we know we have other opportunities to embrace? We can be so petty and yet so wise so are you waiting how do you experience this ango so far we are two weeks into it Where are you at with this? I will uh, let our Shuso begin this. You have to unmute. Good. I got unmuted. <laughs> Thank you. Wholehearted unmuted. Oh. Morning, everyone. Um. It's been very um, interesting doing um, all the writing that I've been doing. Um, it. Um, has put me in a different um, 
relationship to notions like awareness and intention and action, which are three of the big things that I've been working on. Um, and it brings it um, much more into um, all of my activities. Um, and sometimes it's a positive way of coming into the activities um, to make me more aware of um, um, what's happening. Sometimes it's not so positive. It's the urge to, um, what can I get out of this that I can write about, uh, which is uh, not really um, taking the experience for what it is, but extracting from it. Um, you know, what is in here that would make a good story or that I could say something or this or that. Um, so it's interesting to watch in ourselves that that play back and forth. And when when you focus on something like the writing, um, it gives us a chance for that to come more to the surface so we can look at it and um, see what's there, see how we deal with those things. Um, and um, the writing is interesting because um, it leaves a trail um, but it um, is sort of interesting to look back and see um, whether it's really left traces, right? Or has it really, like, is what is written become then um, um, somehow a demand on the future that it has to be some in coherence with what it is in the past? Or, or can the writings really be what was in the moment and the next day is the next moment. And so it's not that you're um, building this cumulative structure, it's that um, every day is a different writing and um, um, you know what you wrote before is grist for the mill, it's resources, it's karma that you can bring to your uh, use if you can make use of it. Um, so those are some of my experiences. I would encourage people to be writing if, um, if you've thought about it and have hesitated so far. Uh, my writing gets out of control sometimes. Segyoko keeps telling me to keep it short. Um, so that by all means, you're writing sentence, two sentences, a paragraph, uh, it's just a very interesting dimension of um, an experience, bringing it to some kind of expression. Mm -hmm. um, the expression doesn't have to um, cap the experience, summarize it, perfect it. Uh, it's just part of the experience um, and can sometimes be a very helpful one uh, to get a better sense of, you know, I thought it was this, but it's that. Um, I guess one last thing with writing, um, frequently, I think I'm doing one thing and that by the time I finished writing it, I've done something very different. Uh, in fact, almost every time I write. Uh, and so to write and have a sense of, you know, this is where I'm going to go um, and feel that if you don't get there, somehow something's wrong. Um, for me, at least, writing is, is often this process of sorting things out um, and they're really kind of wondrous times are when you end up exactly turned around. You thought you were going in this direction and, you know, that's where the truth was. And it ended up that 
no, um, you know, you, you didn't see this or you were hung up on this word or whatever it is, but that without really intending it, all of a sudden you're looking at things in a very, very different way. Mm -hmm. And that gets really exciting. Um, okay, thank you all for your practice. Thank you. And uh, yeah, so the suggestion also, I, I think, is helpful in terms of being uh, more intimately connected with this and feeling this uh, within, from within or without, right? But really um, staying with this moment and feeling it. So to stop and take a look, rather than you just stay in that go, go, go mentality. Yeah, just to stop, appreciate, take a look and see what arises. So, thank you. Okay, who wants to share? Yes, Jeremy, good morning. Good morning. I, I wanted to add on to what Raison was saying um, about writing. I um, have had a journaling practice for a while, and it's interesting because um, I um, I try to use it sometimes to uh, elicit some of the you know insights I'm finding, uh, but uh, sometimes I'm just collecting words, right? You know, you're just writing something. Um, and maybe trying to remember it for later, but yet I don't necessarily go back to it. Um, and one of the things about uh, practicing wholeheartedly that I'm experiencing right now is this sense of embodiment um, with the ideas. So um, that they're not just words on a paper, um, that um, if something does, the practice of writing for me is almost like a sift like, you know, Raison was talking about, like, you maybe think you're going somewhere, but you end up somewhere else. So you're sifting through these ideas or connecting dots a bit, but it's not until the manifestation afterwards. It's that sense of like boiling it down and then owning it and then um, experiencing it past that. Um, it's nice to me. So thank you, Raison, for your practice and for all your shares. Thank you, Jeremy. So if you need uh, uh, stuff to work with, how do you work with impatience and restlessness, which can be great barriers to wholeheartedness? Um, and uh, very common, absolutely very common, universal impatience and a sense of restlessness, which really is, is preventing us from truly embracing and appreciating this. Or we can even see it as the sense of impatience is telling us that we are not appreciating, we are rejecting this. We are not wholehearted, we are not intimately connected with this because the mind is already somewhere else. We don't even know where actually often because there is nothing else, it's just idea. But, but the, the, the bigger issue here is rejection. So how do you encounter, uh, or what do you do when you encounter uh, impatience and restlessness? It could be right now, maybe wanting this to end and then wanting to move on to the next thing today, whatever that is on your to-do list or to-not-do list. Kelly, good morning. Good morning. Um, something I just wanted to say in response, um, because I... I 
I feel restlessness frequently in my practice and impatience. I, but the, um, the opposite of impatience doesn't seem to me to be patience. I think those are two sides of a coin um, that I don't really want around right now, like while I'm practicing. Um, mm-hmm. And so for me, the, if you want to have an opposite of impatience, it's more like wonder or curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the things that help me a lot when I'm feeling that way. I sort of bring bring it back to like the the you before the you sort of feeling, which for me is like a, an, a sense of awe, a sense of stepping back, stepping to, to observe and, and enjoy. And, and for me that, you know, if I'm in Zazen, that's usually to the breath. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Thank you. So, so yes. Yeah, so what we talk, what you're talking about is not creating, not fortifying a sense of a duality, right? Right. Because if I'm, if I'm feeling this way and I'm, I'm trying to jump to the other side of that, there's still two sides, right? So in terms of uh, impatience or restlessness, what we need to practice is what we practiced the last angle, right? We go back to uh, acceptance, right? If I, if we accept, we accept the the sense of restlessness, then we are not looking for something else. We realize there is a sense of restlessness, and then we work with that. And while we feel restless, we can ask, how can I embrace this? Or how how do I embrace this? And embracing this includes the restlessness. It has to. Thank you. Jürgen. Good morning, everyone. Morning. Um, I just I wanted to thank um, Kelly for that insight because that was um, that's that's interesting to think of it that way and i was thinking you know you can have impatience or patience watching grass grow but they're not really opposites are they like i can have impatience waiting for the grass to grow right but if i have curiosity and wonder i'm watching the grass growing with with love and attendance and that really helps me in terms of teaching as well i'm a special education teacher and and just thinking of it that way helps me to understand that they need my curiosity and my wonder in order to have their own. So I just wanted to thank you for that. That was wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Also, in terms of curiosity, we don't limit ourselves to one feeling. We may feel restless, but we realize that we are much greater than restlessness which means we have room for restlessness. We are greater than restlessness. We are greater than whatever emotion happens to be passing by that moment, that day, that week. So there is that sense of curiosity. What else is going on? I realize there is restlessness, but there's a lot more going on right now. The rain, the smells, the sounds. Who's next? Sogen? Did you just gasho or did you gasho in, in, <laughs> in order to speak? I was just, I was just gasho, uh, doing a regular gasho. But I, I did want to speak, um, uh, morning everyone. I did want to speak uh, a little bit to the point that Jeremy and, and Rezan um, 
raised about writing. Uh, so I have some experience with that as well. And so people sometimes refer to that as discovery writing, that you're, you're writing not according to a, a presupposed plan, but you, you're sort of discovering where you're going as you're writing. And a lot of that is similar to Zen practice. A lot of people have integrated uh, writing practice as part of Zen. And, and there's often a lot of talk about sort of getting out of your own way um, and, and letting the writing come from an original place. So I, I view a lot of those practices as pretty complementary. So that's what, what came up for me when they were uh, discussing that. Thank you. Who's next? But uh, Daibo Daikyo. Morning. Morning. Um, it was I was thinking about that uh, in the writing um, just now that um, and it, it's funny because for me um, it has always been. Uh, discovery talking. Um, I, I find that uh, that um, the best of understanding of things I have comes after I start talking about this fussy communion of idea and sensation that comes together into start kind of forming words. And it's interesting because sometimes it doesn't get explained very well you know, after the words are coming, but uh, it, but it clears the sensations in in, in my own uh, my own perception of what's going on, and um, so I, I practice that. I mean, my friends know that sometimes I just need to talk to them. <laughs> they have like they've been great in 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 kind of lending the, the ear to that. You know, like and 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 kind of a. Uh, um, Act as kind of the 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 thing that you need, but some people is the paper maybe, you know. And, and for me, it has been you know that interaction with people that uh, makes that happen. And uh, so I, I mean, I just wanted to mention that that's my 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 way of of expressing those things. Um, but I also wanted you know I was hearing um, the conversation today and 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 Tasha and and also kind of tying it back to to the conversations that on last weekend and uh, talking about the the importance of not knowing but also the importance of of delusion not being an enemy mm -hmm. you know and I remember that um, and last week we were talking about this preconceived notion of the Nancy that was this way or that way and uh, and and I remember thinking about it and it's like there is there is no way we can avoid having those thoughts. There is no precluding that. There is no way of... So there is this acceptance of that delusion, the acceptance of how we as humans have that nature of being deluded. And it's part of our operation to be deluded. It's part of how we function. We cannot function if, if we really 
approach everything as absolutely completely new because then we cannot walk or we cannot I mean like we can we can we need to have those preconceived ideas of how to go up the stairs you know and and sometimes it does it doesn't work because the stairs may be out of whack and I don't know if you have seen that but you're like uh, if one staircase is out of whack one step is, is out of the height that all the others that need to be we we trip you know and and that is our preconceived idea of how high we move the feet because of the stairs being standardized we don't even think about that but you know the, the stairs are standardized to a certain height um we function that way so so it's it's more about the acknowledgement of of that preconceived notions and how harmful they can be to actually be in the moment um, without the re rejecting the fact that we do have those, you know, and, and that is kind of the, the, the nuance of this is that how can I be like Kelly was saying about the impatience about something and how, how can I be at the same time restless and impatient about something and connected to it anyway. Um, you know, and, and, and I wanted to kind of raise that awareness that we shouldn't, I, I don't know, it felt the other day and, and, and that, that we were kind of a little bit bashing the delusion. And, and I think, you know, um, I been embracing it more and more as part of what it is, you know, and, and in that embracing, you know, this, uh, you can be more connected with the joy of just being, you know, including all those things that are clumsy about us or those things that are, don't work very well. Uh, all those moments where we just feel, oh my God, I don't really, I don't, you know, this is really bad. And, and, and embracing all that too as part of, of the joy of, of living, you know, the joy of being connected with this. Um, and I, you know, I, I, so I do believe that that is, um, we were talking about it today and, and the not knowing goes right on to it is the awareness that we don't know but at the same times the the knowledge i mean the the, the inform i think you know inform that the, the, the depiction that reason did in and the but the inform versus the knowing i think that is kind of very very accurate on this i mean it's like all this information is there and we need to use it is is how we function mm. it's we shouldn't take it as we know and as, as an absolute and uh so uh, i'm sure to share that thank you thank you thank you anyone else uh before we begin to wrap it up So another, another uh, aspect of this is listening to others, listening to each other. It's very uh, common to, to feel some sense of uh, restlessness, some sense of losing attention. How, how do we uh, remain wholehearted despite the judgments of the mind or regardless of the judgments of the mind when we listen to each other to other people how do you do that what works for you anyone daibo 
Morning. What works for you? Oh, good morning. Um, so, discovery, right? Um, so I think Sogan talked about it, discovery writing, and then Daikyo talked about it a little bit too. Um, you know, this koan is a koan of discovery, right? You know, if we, if we look at the text, said, where did you go? First, I went pursuing the fragrant glass grasses, then I returned following the falling flowers. Um, so back to your question, it, it's, it's the ability to discover what it is that we're actually doing, mm -hmm. what we're actually experiencing, you know, not going out with any preconceived notions, as, as Daikyo was saying, and just being able to be adaptive with our practice to what we're experiencing. So, you know, going to the writing thing, you know, uh, I was thinking um, to writing, because this is one of my favorite koans and, and writing a gata on this koan, you know, it would be, for me, it would be when I started practice, I wanted to lift the veil obscuring reality. Mm -hmm. Who would have thought I just needed to open my eyes? You know, so I, I started Zen practice very intellectually, thinking there was something that was obscuring my perception of the truth. Um, when really, um, you know, similar to the discovery writing, I was just getting in my own way. And I realized for me, I just needed to pay attention to things and the veil would disintegrate and then things would open up and I would not have that feeling of not being able to know because the not knowing itself is truly um, where we arrive with each step. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, yeah, so to open up to a sense of discovery is to shift the attention from the known to the unknown. So the example of listening to each other, to other people, the restlessness or the sense of dissatisfaction or, or, or boredom or uh, judgments have, these have everything to do with the known. I know, I know, I know, and I know that I would rather do something else right now or listen to someone else right now. But if we shift from that to the unknown and we truly listen, truly listen, right, wholeheartedly listen, then it's wide open. Then the known becomes irrelevant. What I know, what I, I become irrelevant, maybe that's better. I become irrelevant. And when I become irrelevant, there is freedom. It's not dismissing oneself. It's putting aside what we think about ourselves. Or it's seeing that self and other are non-dual. So if I am rejecting uh, what the other is saying, I'm actually rejecting what I'm saying. Because it comes from the same place. And again, it's radical. It's a radical way of understanding. And that's why it, it does take time. But that's the shift that we have to go through. Thank you, Dab. Anyone else? Before we and Segyoku, good morning. Good morning. Um, 
I've already forgotten the question you just asked that I have a response to. <laughs> um, but it was something about what happens when we find we're not wholehearted. And uh, what came to me was um, feeling what it means to forgive myself because I can be so judgmental and you can give shows and you can talk about how we have to be wholehearted. Well, it feels like most of the time I am not what I think wholehearted is. Mm -hmm. And um, I know that that is an idea. I have an idea of what wholehearted me is and what it would feel like. But I also know that there are certain other ways I'm trying to work with my life and practice that are approaching it and are um, approaching getting close to what you also said about um, restlessness being a hindrance to wholeheartedness. Mm -hmm. And um, approaching getting to know what that restlessness is mm -hmm. as a way of not rejecting it or trying to bypass it and go right to wholeheartedness, which I don't seem to be able to do <laughs> uh, by saying, okay, now I'm going to be wholehearted. Uh, but, um, I am learning to approach restlessness and get to know it mm -hmm. a little more. So if I'm sitting and I'm restless, or even if I'm not sitting and I'm feeling impatient, mm -hmm. I can, uh, just stop and feel the physical feelings and see what is the physical feelings and what are the ideas and expectations about the physical feelings. Um, one expectation is this is going to go on forever. This is going to be the most torturous sitting. Mm -hmm. uh, let me out of here. Uh, that could be part of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, sometimes if I just feel the physical feeling, uh, I can say to myself, okay, I don't know that this is going to be the most torturous sitting throughout. I just know that something in me doesn't like this right now. Mm -hmm. And I can kind of, uh, and I can remember that in other sittings, the energy has sometimes shifted. And I can also sort of look and say, well, okay, there's this, these sensations, which I'm calling unpleasant, but are there also other sensations going on at the same time that I would call pleasant? Mm -hmm. uh, and what do those feel like? Mm -hmm. And the last thing I'll say is uh, what's about something you said in the Taisho. Um, oh, what was it? about um, contentment that's not dependent on conditions. 
And let's see, uh, you said something about These, these aren't your words, and I may not be getting it right, but I think you said something about if we think that content, if we think that enlightenment depends on what is pleasant, we're missing it. It's not necessarily pleasant. But I've been experimenting with the idea that when I experience moments of pleasantness, it can be that at those times, there's uh, excitement and desire for more of it, mm -hmm. um, fear of it ending, uh, grasping greed, mm -hmm. or it could be that there's just a sense of contentment with the experience of the pleasantness and that that's enough, that it doesn't have to it's just being there with the pleasantness. And um, I'm wondering or experimenting with the hypothesis that that feeling of contentment that I feel with the pleasantness is the same feeling of contentment that it would be possible to also experience when there is unpleasantness and that it's giving me a clue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good, it's a good note to end with, <laughs> right? Because because we have to remember that when we talk about wholeheartedness, we're not talking about anything. We're not talking about anything specific, right? We're not. We're just keeping it wide open, and then we bring the whole the sense of wholeheartedness or practice whole of wholeheartedness to whatever the experience is, All right? So it's undifferentiated. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good note to end with. The last thing. Yeah. It is pleasant. Say again. It is pleasant. The whole heart, the sense of wholeheartedness is pleasant? Well, maybe it's wholeheartedness, the sense of... some continuing sense, undifferentiated, ungraspable, unknowable, mm -hmm. but a sense of contentment. Contentment. Yes. It's a, it can be an underlying sense of contentment that allows things to go up and down and right and left, to go sideways. It allows uh, times of uh, being in, feeling being in alignment and times that yeah, we're not feeling being in alignment. It allows for it all. The way allows for it all. We don't. But the way allows for it all. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you all. This to be continued. <laughs>